What if the age of adulthood was legally determined by your gender? In Utah, circa 1975, that meant 18 years old if you were a female and 21 if you were a male. Pursuant to a Utah statute providing that the period of minority for males extends to age 21 and for females only to age 18, the age classification made by the statute denies equal protection. We find nothing rational in the statutory distinction between males and females, which, when related to the divorce decree, results in the husband's liability for support for the daughter only to age 18, but for the son to age 21. I just stumbled across this case and I had to read it because I thought it was fascinating. I've done zero research on this, so I don't know exactly why the Founding Fathers of Utah wrote this law in 1852, but I have a hunch that it was not because they believed that females possessed superior independence and maturity. And now, the 1975 opinion of the court in Stanton v. Stanton. Mr. Justice Blackman delivered the opinion of the court. This case presents the issue whether a state statute specifying for males a greater age of majority than it specifies for females denies in the context of a parent's obligation for support payments for his children the equal protection of the laws guaranteed by Section 1 of the 14th Amendment. Part 1 Appellant Thelma B. Stanton and Appellee James Lawrence Stanton, Jr. were married at Elko, Nevada in February 1951. At the suit of the appellant, they were divorced in Utah on November 29, 1960. They have a daughter, Sherry Lynn, born in February 1953, and a son, Rick Arland, born in January 1955. Sherry became 18 on February 12, 1971, and Rick on January 29, 1973. During the divorce proceedings in the District Court of Salt Lake County, the parties entered into a stipulation as to property, child support, and alimony. The court awarded custody of their children to their mother and incorporated provisions of the stipulation into its findings and conclusions, and into its decree of divorce. Specifically as to alimony and child support, the decree provided, Defendant is ordered to pay to plaintiff the sum of $300 per month as child support and alimony, $100 per month for each child as child support, and $100 per month as alimony to be paid on or before the first day of each month through the office of the Salt Lake County Clerk. The appellant thereafter remarried. The court 
pursuant to another stipulation, then modified the decree to relieve the appellee from payment of further alimony. The appellee also later remarried. When Sherry attained 18, the appellee discontinued payments for her support. In May 1973, the appellant moved the divorce court for entry of judgment in her favor and against the appellee for, among other things, support for the children for the periods after each respectively attained the age of 18 years. The court concluded that, on February 12, 1971, Sherry became 18 years of age, and under the provisions of Section 15-2-1, Utah Code, thereby attained her majority. Defendant is not obligated to plaintiff for maintenance and support of Sherry Lynn Stanton since that date. An order denying the appellant's motion was entered accordingly. The appellant appealed to the Supreme Court of Utah. She contended, among other things, that Utah Code, to the effect that the period of minority for males extends to age 21 and for females to age 18, is invidiously discriminatory and serves to deny due process and equal protection of the laws in violation of the 14th Amendment and of the corresponding provisions of the Utah Constitution, namely Article 1, Sections 7 and 24, and Article 4, Section 1. The court referred to what it called some old notions, namely that generally it is the man's primary responsibility to provide a home and its essentials, that it is a salutary thing for him to get a good education and or training before he undertakes those responsibilities, that girls tend generally to mature physically, emotionally, and mentally before boys, and that they generally tend to marry earlier. It concluded, It is our judgment that there is no basis upon which we would be justified in concluding that the statute is so beyond a reasonable doubt in conflict with constitutional provisions that it should be stricken down as invalid. If such a change were desirable, the court said, that is a matter which should commend itself to the attention of the legislature. The appellant, thus, was held not entitled to support for Sherry for the period after she attained 18, but was entitled to support for Rick during his minority, unless otherwise ordered by the trial court we noted probable jurisdiction. Part 2 The appellee initially suggests that the support issue is moot and that in any event, the appellant lacks standing. These arguments are related and we reject 
both of them. A. The mootness suggestion is based on the propositions that both the appellant and Sherry are now over 21 and that neither possesses rights that can be affected by the outcome of this proceeding. At the time the case was before us on the jurisdictional statement, the appellee suggested that the case involved a non-justiciable political question. Each approach, of course, overlooks the fact that what is at issue is support for the daughter during her years between 18 and 21. If appellee, under the divorce decree, is obligated for Sherry's support during that period, it is an obligation that has not been fulfilled, and there is an amount past due and owing from the appellee. The obligation issue then plainly presents a continuing live case or controversy. It is neither moot nor non-justiciable. B. The suggestion as to standing is that the appellant is not of the age group affected by the Utah statute, and that she therefore lacks a personal stake in the resolution of the issue. It is said that, when the appellant signed the stipulation as to support payments, she took the Utah law as it was, and thus waived or stopped from asserting any right to support payments after the daughter attained age 18. We are satisfied that it makes no difference whether the appellant's interest in any obligation of the appellee under the divorce decree for Sherry's support between ages 18 and 21 is regarded as an interest personal to appellant or as that of a fiduciary. The Utah court has described support money as compensation to a spouse for the support of minor children, and the right to pass due support money appears to be the supplying spouses, not the child's. The appellant, therefore, clearly has a personal stake in the outcome of the controversy, as to assure that concrete adverseness which sharpens the presentation of issues upon which the court so largely depends for illumination of difficult constitutional questions. We see nothing in the stipulation itself that is directed to the question when majority is reached for purposes of support payments or that smacks of waiver. In addition, the Uniform Civil Liability for Support Act has been in effect in Utah since 1957. Section 7845-4 specifically provides every woman shall support her child. This is in addition to the mandate contained in Section 78-45-3. Every man shall support his wife and his child. Child is defined to mean a son or daughter under the age of 21 years. 
and Section 78-45-12 states, The rights herein created are in addition to, and not in substitution of, any other rights. The appellant herself thus had a legal obligation under Utah law to support her daughter until Sherry became 21. That obligation, however, obviously was not in derogation of any right she might have against the appellee under the divorce decree. Her interest in the controversy, therefore, is distinct and significant and is one that assures concrete adverseness and proper standing on her part. Part 3 We turn to the merits. The appellant argues that Utah's statutory prescription establishing different ages of majority for males and females denies equal protection, that it is a classification based solely on sex and affects a child's fundamental right to be fed, clothed, and sheltered by its parents, that no compelling state interest supports the classification, and that the statute can withstand no judicial scrutiny, close or otherwise, for it has no relationship to any ascertainable legislative objective. The appellee contends that the test is that of rationality and that the age classification has a rational basis and endures any attack based on equal protection. We find it unnecessary in this case to decide whether a classification based on sex, is inherently suspect. Reed, we feel, is controlling here. That case presented an equal protection challenge to a provision of the Idaho Probate Code, which gave preference to males over females when persons otherwise of the same entitlement applied for appointment as administrator of a decedent's estate. No regard was paid under the statute to the applicant's respective individual qualifications. In upholding the challenge, the court reasoned that the Idaho statute accorded different treatment on the basis of sex and that it thus establishes a classification subject to scrutiny under the Equal Protection Clause. The clause, it was said, denies to states the power to legislate that different treatment be accorded to persons placed by a statute into different classes on the basis of criteria wholly unrelated to the objective of that statute. A classification must be reasonable, not arbitrary, and must rest upon some ground of difference having a fair and substantial relation to the object of the legislation, so that all persons similarly circumstanced shall be treated alike. It was not enough to save the statute that among its objectives were the elimination both of an area of possible family controversy 
and of a hearing on the comparative merits of petitioning relatives. The test here, then, is whether the difference in sex between children warrants the distinction in the appellee's obligation to support that is drawn by the Utah statute. We conclude that it does not. It may be true, as the Utah court observed, and as is argued here, that it is the man's primary responsibility to provide a home, and that it is salutary for him to have education and training before he assumes that responsibility. That girls tend to mature earlier than boys, and that females tend to marry earlier than males. The last-mentioned factor, however, under Utah statute, loses whatever weight it otherwise might have, for the statute states that all minors obtain their majority by marriage. Thus, minority, and all that goes with it, is abruptly lost by marriage of a person of either sex at whatever tender age the marriage occurs. Notwithstanding the old notions to which the Utah court referred, we perceive nothing rational in the distinction drawn by section 15-2-1, which, when related to the divorce decree, results in the appellee's liability for support for Sherry only to age 18, but for Rick to age 21. This imposes criteria wholly unrelated to the objective of that statute. A child, male or female, is still a child. No longer is the female destined solely for the home and the rearing of the family, and only the male for the marketplace and the world of ideas. Women's activities and responsibilities are increasing and expanding. Co-education is a fact, not a rarity. The presence of women in business, in the professions, in government, and indeed in all walks of life where education is a desirable, if not always a necessary, antecedent is apparent, and a proper subject of judicial notice. If a specific age of minority is required for the boy in order to assure him parental support while he attains his education and training, so too is it for the girl. To distinguish between the two on educational grounds is to be self-serving. If the female is not to be supported so long as the male, she hardly can be expected to attend school as long as he does. And bringing her education to an end earlier coincides with the role-typing society has long imposed. And if any weight remains in this day to the claim of earlier maturity of the female, with a concomitant inference of absence of need for support beyond 18, we fail to perceive its unquestioned truth or its significance 
particularly when marriage, as the statute provides, terminates minority for a person of either sex. Only Arkansas, as far as our investigation reveals, remains with Utah in fixing the age of majority for females at 18 and for males at 21. Furthermore, Utah itself draws the 18 to 21 distinction only in section 15-2-1, defining minority, and in section 30-1-9, relating to marriage without the consent of parent or guardian. Making void a marriage where the male is under 16 or the female under 14. Elsewhere, in the state's present constitutional and statutory structure, the male and the female appear to be treated alike. The state's constitution provides that the rights of Utah citizens to vote and hold office shall not be denied or abridged on account of sex, and that both male and female citizens shall enjoy equally all civil, political, and religious rights and privileges. And, since long before the nation's adoption of the 26th Amendment in 1971, did provide that every citizen of the age of 21 years and upwards, who satisfies durational requirements, shall be entitled to vote. Utah's statutes provide that any citizen over the age of 21 who meets specific non-sex qualifications is competent to act as a juror, may be admitted to the practice of law, and may act as an incorporator. And if under 21 and in need, may be entitled to public assistance. The ages at which persons may serve in legislative, executive, and judicial offices are the same for males and females. Tobacco may not be sold, purchased, or possessed by persons of either sex under 19 years of age. No age differential is imposed with respect to the issuance of motor vehicle licenses. State adult education programs are open to every person 18 years of age or over, the Uniform Gifts to Minors Act is in effect in Utah and defines a minor for its purposes as any person who has not attained the age of 21 years. Juvenile court jurisdiction extends to persons of either sex under a designated age. Every person over the age of 18 and of sound mind may dispose of his property by will. And the Uniform Civil Liability for Support Act, noted above and in effect in Utah since 1957, imposes on each parent an obligation of support of both sons and daughters until age 21. This is not to say that Section 15-2-1 does not have important effect in application. A minor may disaffirm his contracts. An infant must appear in court by guardian or guardian ad litem.
a parent has a right of action for injury to or wrongful death of a minor child. A person under the age of majority is not competent or entitled to serve as an administrator of a decedent's estate or as the executor of a decedent's will. The statute of limitations is told while a person entitled to bring an action is under the age of majority. Thus, the distinction drawn by section 15-2-1 affects other rights and duties. It has pervasive effect, both direct and collateral. We therefore conclude that under any test, compelling state interest or rational basis, or something in between, section 15-2-1, in the context of child support, does not survive an equal protection attack. In that context, no valid distinction between male and female may be drawn. Part 4 Our conclusion that in the context of child support, the classification effectuated by Section 15-2-1 denies the equal protection of the laws, as guaranteed by the 14th Amendment, does not finally resolve the controversy as between this appellant and this appellee. With the age differential held invalid, it is not for this court to determine when the appellee's obligation for his children's support pursuant to the divorce decree terminates under Utah law. The appellant asserts that, with the classification eliminated, the common law applies, and that, at common law, the age of majority for both males and females is 21. The appellee claims that any unconstitutional inequality between males and females is to be remedied by treating males as adults at age 18 rather than by withholding the privileges of adulthood from women until they reach 21. This plainly is an issue of state law to be resolved by the Utah courts on remand. The issue was noted incidentally by the Supreme Court of Utah. The appellant, although prevailing here on the federal constitutional issue, may or may not ultimately win her lawsuit. The judgment of the Supreme Court of Utah is reversed, and the case is remanded for further proceedings not inconsistent with this opinion. It is so ordered. We've reached the end of the opinion. If you'd like to request a particular opinion to be read on the show, or you just want to say hello, navigate your way to the show's website at whatscotusrotus.podbean.com and click on the contact tab. Until next episode, thanks for listening to What Scotus Wrote Us.